Well, today marks the beginning of Advent, which uh, simply means coming or arrival, and as a season represents the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, Christians use this season in order uh, to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God who was born as one of us. In this Advent, we are uh, going to be using this season uh, to be reflecting on what church tradition recognizes as four of the earliest songs that celebrate the rich and wonderful blessings that flow from Jesus' arrival. So today we'll begin with Mary's Magnificat, which is based upon the Latin translation of the first phrase in her song. But then in coming weeks, we'll consider what's come to be known as Zachariah's Benedictus, the Angel's Gloria, and the Song of Simeon. But as we begin a series reflecting on Christmas blessings, the blessings that have flowed into our life because Jesus entered the world, we want to begin by pondering what does it mean to be truly blessed, especially when we consider what passes for blessing on social media. One writer writes this, Hashtag blessed is an internet sensation for anyone who wants to proclaim the great things that they have going for them for the entire world to see. Despite most people's good intentions, this simple hashtag actually reveals the reality of the human heart. This is because more often than not, hashtag blessed is actually hashtag bragging. I'm so blessed to be with friends who love me. I'm blessed to have a home. I'm blessed that it's a fishing season, that my coffee is hot, that my bed is warm, and on and on we go. I'm so blessed by how good I've got it, and I want everyone else to know it. Now, acknowledging how blessed we are isn't actually the problem, but perhaps using social media as the way to do it is really a way for us to present ourselves as humbly bragging about how good our life is. But I want to ask, could any of us ever imagine, whatever social media we may or may not use, Posting something with this caption. My life is falling apart and I'm discouraged. Hashtag blessed. Sounds absurd, right? But the absurdity of such a suggestion reveals that our definition of blessedness is upside down. Where culture says blessedness is about how good we've got it, Jesus says blessedness is about how close we are to him. By all means, God is the deliverer of all things good. We should praise Him and thank Him for the many blessings He pours into our life. But the truest blessings are often found not in the things that make us happy circumstantially, but in the things that draw our hearts near to Christ. And so even when our whole life is falling apart and nothing seems good, Jesus can be near and we can be blessed. And so as we begin this Advent season, we'll see in our passage for today, Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55, that this text is tailored to teach us that those who are truly blessed trust in Jesus and rejoice in his blessing. This text is tailored to teach us that those who are truly blessed trust in Jesus and rejoice in his blessing. And we'll see that by considering three questions. First, how can we be blessed? And we'll see that we can be blessed Because of Jesus. Second, how do we receive his blessing? The answer, we receive his blessing through trust. And finally, how should we respond to his blessing? We respond to his blessing with rejoicing. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. And it pierces the division between soul and spirit. And so we ask that this morning your word would pierce our hearts. That it would help us to see the goodness of Christ. It would help us to see the many blessings we have from Jesus so that we ought be able to rejoice in him no matter our circumstances. Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that today we would see the truest blessings we have are found in him and him alone. Please use our time together this morning to exalt the name of Jesus and the world, but beginning with our hearts. And so in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 44, or 55. Uh, and if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, pick up one of our community Bibles that'll help you to follow along under your seat or the seat next to you. And our passage, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is on page 856. You'll be looking uh, for a, a big, bold one. That's a chapter followed by a small number, 39. That's a verse. Uh, and once you've found it, let me invite all of us to just take a moment uh, to quietly prepare our heart to receive God's word. Uh, you know where you're tempted to look to to find true blessing and ask that God would speak to you about the blessings you have in Christ this morning. Well, if you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Wonderful. Let's dig in. Look with me at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here we see that we can be blessed because of Jesus. We can be blessed because of Jesus. But before we go much further into our passage, we need to consider the passage we had read for us earlier, the context of what we're looking at now as well as the interpretive key to this passage. So Luke 1 begins by recounting the experience of Zechariah, a priest who was married to a, name, a woman named Elizabeth that uh, we meet in our passage today. Both of them, Luke 1 describes as being advanced in years. That means they're at least 60 years old, potentially older, and they had no children. Elizabeth was barren, and it was unlikely that they would ever have children. Yet as Zechariah, a priest, is serving in the temple that year, an angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a child. And instead of believing an angel that's appeared before him, he doesn't believe. And as a consequence, he's made mute until the birth of the baby. And sure enough, as he returns home, he and Elizabeth conceive a child. Then as we read earlier this morning, six months into that child's conception, an angel then appears to the young teenage girl. Mary, who's 12 to 14 years of age, and promises that though she is a virgin, she will conceive a son who will be called Jesus. 
Jesus will be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who will receive the throne of David, who will have a kingdom that lasts forever. And when Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel responds saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I don't know that that answer does much to actually resolve Mary's question, but it does affirm that the birth of Jesus would be supernatural from the very beginning, affirming the utter uniqueness of Jesus and showing that Jesus would be the start of a new humanity where there was Adam once who sinned, Jesus would be a second Adam who would live in righteousness. Now, as Pastor Mike McKinley points out, roughly a century ago, influential theologians began to doubt whether or not this story was actually true. They pointed to the virgin birth of Jesus as a a superstition that intelligent modern people simply couldn't accept. After all, we know that there's no such thing as a baby being born to a virgin. That's impossible. And so if Christianity was going to flourish in a scientific era, or so the thinking went, they would need to jettison these kinds of myths that were an insult to reason and intelligence. And on the surface, this might sound reasonable. After all, we all know virgins don't have babies. Barren women don't bear children. But if you look closely, you'll see that doesn't actually do justice to Luke or to Mary, Zachariah, and Elizabeth. They were not gullible bumpkins who didn't know how babies were made and believed fantastical stories, nor for that matter were Luke or any of the original hearers. They found the whole idea as unlikely as you and I might find it. That's why Mary asked, how can this be? That's why Zechariah does not believe the angel. But that's exactly the point. The great theological truth that Luke is bringing to the very forefront of this story by including these events in his orderly account is that God's salvation will come in an impossible way. As Jesus will later say in the gospel, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so with this announcement... Rather than disbelieve the craziness as Zechariah did, Mary trusts the angel's word and says, Let it be to me according to your word. And with that, we come to our passage this morning, which begins by letting us know that Mary makes haste to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who the angel had said also has miraculously conceived. He announced that to her as a way to encourage her that his promise that she would conceive would come true. And so Mary's haste to get to Elizabeth actually reveals her eagerness to see that what God had promised to Elizabeth had come true and her eagerness to be reassured that her faith, that she would conceive as a virgin, was not unwarranted. And this brings us then to the key to understanding our passage. The New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes these words. There are two keys to unlocking this passage. The representative roles Elizabeth and Mary possess as picturing two qualities of believers. And second, the realization that Mary's hymn is a story not only about herself, but about all those who fear God and are the objects of his mercy and grace. In other words, the key for us to understand this passage is to see that both Mary and Elizabeth are representative of all of us. And Mary's song celebrates what God has done, not just for her, but for all of us. And this is why Elizabeth and Mary's interaction and Mary's song is not just true for them, but true for us as well. 
So with that, let's press ahead into our passage. When Mary arrives in Elizabeth's home, three amazing events happen. First, in verses 41 and 44, when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps with joy because he knows the Messiah has come into his presence. He knows his Lord is in Mary's womb. Second, even though Mary has yet to tell anyone what has happened to her, she made haste to Elizabeth. She arrives there, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth reveals to her the blessing that Mary has experienced. The promise of the angel has come true. She has conceived. She has a child. And she is blessed. And third, Elizabeth describes Mary as the mother of her Lord. as She recounts the privilege of being visited by Mary. So let's consider the significance of each of these events in turn. Beginning with the most straightforward, Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of her Lord. And in doing so, she is recognizing Jesus as God himself. This word translated as Lord is the word that was applied in the Old Testament every time to God in his covenant name. When the Israelites wanted to refer to God as his personal name, the the name of the God who entered into a relationship with him, the Lord was the translation they would use in Greek. And yet, shockingly, Elizabeth is applying this term to Jesus before he's even born, before she's seen anything. The Holy Spirit has revealed to her that Jesus is God in human flesh. This is why our statement of faith says, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person, two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is so important because it's only because Jesus is both God and man that we can be saved. Being fully God, he is able to save us. Being fully man, he is able to represent us. And although Jesus is recognized as God himself, he is here miraculously incredibly and astoundingly confining himself to be born as a human baby. Fully God, fully man. Second, even though the scriptures don't talk in a rigidly scientific or philosophical way about pre-born human life, passages like this train our minds and our hearts to see pre-born life as human life. As Pastor Kent Hughes describes the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, yet to see the light of the world, he experiences the emotion of joyous delight. This is testimony to the pre-birth personhood of John the Baptist. Further, Elizabeth describes Mary, though Jesus has not yet been born, as the mother of her Lord. He is already the Son of God in human flesh in her womb. But we can imagine if 12 to 14-year-old Mary had been born in mid-America, modern-day America, there would have been a line of people ready to encourage her to abort her baby. Perhaps to avoid the shame of being pregnant out of wedlock. Perhaps to avoid the potential economic consequences of Joseph finding out and wanting to put her away. So let's praise God that Christ was not born into mid-century America. Praise God that our Savior was actually born. And let's let passages like these train our hearts and minds to think of the unborn, not as potential humans, but as actual humans, made in God's image, worthy of dignity, respect, and protection. 
And so with that in mind, I want to plead with you. If you ever find yourself with an unplanned pregnancy, perhaps stressed by many fears, economics, and that pressures you to consider getting an abortion, I would plead with you, please, don't abort your precious child. Instead, courageously let someone know what's happened. We would be delighted and honored to walk with you through that difficulty. And even if necessary, figure out how to find an adoptive parent for you. But honor the child that's growing in your room. Protect the life and dignity that's there. I also know that in a room this size, that it's likely that some of you have had abortions or encouraged abortions. And perhaps it was out of ignorance before knowing the scriptures or coming to Christ. Or perhaps it was because of fear or economic stress or the pressures of a boyfriend or family. Whatever the reason, though, I want you to hear me clearly right now. If you turn to Christ, there is forgiveness available for you for all sin, including the sin of abortion. And so it's my hope that if you carry with you such guilt and shame for a sin like abortion, that you would do so no longer. Instead, you would talk to someone you trust about what you're experiencing so that they could remind you that if you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so that as you bring that sin into light, you could begin to experience healing in the presence in the present as you recover from the shame of your sin. I genuinely hope that as you do that, the context of a community that would point you towards Christ, that you would experience freedom from shame and grace and love that Christ has for you. A love that was so profound that he would go all the way to the cross for you. So first, this passage teaches us to see Jesus as God in human flesh. Second, it trains our hearts and mind to see the unborn, not as potential humans, but as fully human. But finally, and more important to the broader point of this passage, it shows that Mary is blessed not based on anything in and of herself, but based upon her proximity to Jesus. Elizabeth blesses her among women and blesses the fruit of her womb. And I want you to notice here that the reason Mary is blessed is not because of anything special about her, but because she is the mother of our Lord, because Jesus was growing in her. There's nothing special about Mary in that regard, except that she was close to Christ. In contrast, the Catholic Church today teaches that Mary is worthy of veneration for several reasons. They affirm something called the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that not only Jesus was born free from original sin, but that Mary was conceived free from original sin. They affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary, meaning Mary was not just a virgin at the conception of Jesus, but all the way past his birth. And they affirm the bodily assumption of Mary, meaning at the completion of her life, both her body and soul were taken up into heaven because of her perfection. But biblically... The reason that Mary is blessed is not because she was free from original sin. It's not because she continued to be pure. It's not because she was so righteous that she got to be in heaven and bodily form. But rather, it's because of her proximity to Jesus. She was God incarnate's mother. Christ had drawn near to her. And this passage then not only corrects Catholics who want to make more of Mary for her being special in and of herself, 
But it also corrects many of us in this room who might not give Mary the honor she does deserve. We'll see in a moment that Mary recognizes that God had promised that all future generations will call her blessed. And so although we should not venerate Mary as the Catholic Church does, it is good and right to honor her as one uniquely blessed by God to be the mother of Jesus. But again, although she was uniquely blessed as the mother of Jesus, you should also notice the reality is the way she was blessed is true for us all. We are not blessed first and foremost by how good we are. We're not blessed first and foremost by how good our life is. Rather, we're blessed first and foremost by how close we are to Jesus, by our proximity to him. He is the reason we can even be blessed in the first place, as Paul would write in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so as a result in Christ, Paul would continue to say, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We are chosen not on the basis of our merit, but upon his grace. We are being made by him holy and blameless until Jesus returns. In Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have an inheritance. In Christ, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit to the praise of Christ and his glorious grace. And all of this is true of those who have drawn near to Christ. Or more importantly, is true of all those whom Christ has drawn near to, regardless of their circumstances. So I want to pose for you the question that was raised for us indirectly earlier. How do you count your blessings? Is it based primarily on how good your life is? How smooth the circumstances are going? Or is it based on how close you are to Jesus? How, now, how near Jesus is to your life, regardless of what your circumstances are like? Mary was blessed by her nearness to Christ. And so, too, it's true of all of us. True blessing is found in Christ and our proximity to him. We can be blessed because of Jesus. But how do we receive this blessing? Look with me at verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Here we see that we receive his blessing through trust. We receive his blessing through trust. Notice here that another reason Elizabeth offers for blessing Mary is because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of the word that was spoken to her. She trusted the promise would come about. Now, in our culture, we can sometimes think of belief as mere mental assent, as agreeing to a checklist, saying, yes, I think that's true. But biblical belief is that kind of intellectual agreement plus personal trust. So biblical belief not only affirms that God's promises are true, but it leans on those promises. It trusts them, rests on them. As one author puts it, biblical faith trusts God, his character, and his love. So it leans on the promises of the gospel and nothing else. This is why I've said that we receive the blessing not just through faith, but through trust. To get at, our faith is not mere intellectual agreement, but personally receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this morning, I would ask, do you believe? But more importantly, do you trust? 
Do you believe without qualification or reservation that Jesus is God? Do you likewise believe that He died on the cross for your sin and paid with Him by His blood? Do you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Do you believe that you're a sinner and that your only hope is in Christ? And if your answer to that question is no, then I would simply ask you, what are you doing to investigate those claims? Is your no because you've actually considered whether or not those things are true, whether there's evidence for them? And if not, I'd plead with you, go investigate those questions. But if your answer is yes, I do believe all those things, I want to ask you this. Have you actually trusted Jesus alone? Have you rested everything on him? Are you reclining on the work of Christ? And I ask the question that way because it's entirely possible to grow up in church and to hear the gospel rehearsed week after week for decades of your life, to be able to say yes, yes, yes to all the questions I've just asked, and yet to have never personally turned from your sin and trusted in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. In fact, if you listen to some Christian stories, that's often how it goes. They grew up in church. They even heard all the right things. And yet it wasn't until they were in their 20s or 30s or much later that they began to realize, wait a second, all this stuff I'm familiar with, I've never actively, personally trusted in. So how do you know if you're someone who affirms the gospel with your mind, but has a heart that's still far from God, that has not trusted in Jesus, then you'll be the kind of person who might affirm all the right things about God, but who's totally apathetic towards God. You have no desire to grow in your knowledge of Him, in your intimacy with Him. You might intellectually affirm, yes, I'm a sinner, other people are sinners, and yet you're never grieved by your sin. You're never moved to turn from your sin. In fact, you're bothered more by other people's sin than your own. You may affirm that the Bible is God's word. And yet, you don't hunger to know the scriptures, to read the scriptures, to have the scriptures shape your heart and mind. You may affirm, yes, yes, the church is the body of Christ. You have no affection for his people, no longing to gather for worship or to build relationship. At the end of the day, a person who has affirmed the gospel with their mind but not trusted in Christ with their heart is someone who's bored by the gospel and not amazed by his grace. And so listen, if this is you, I would plead with you, draw a line in the sand today and to move from being the kind of person who checks off the list and instead actively places their trust in Christ, resting in what he has accomplished. And if you're unsure of whether I'm describing you or not, come talk with me. I'd be delighted to walk with you through those questions and point you to the hope we can have when we rest in Christ's work alone. But we receive his blessing through trust. Now, before we move on, I also want us to notice the context in which Elizabeth's blessing here occurs. Pastor Kent Hughes once again points out, we must understand that Zechariah, 
who was deaf and mute because he had disbelieved Gabriel, was standing in amazed silence at Elizabeth's side. And Elizabeth's piercing beatitude then plays off Zachariah's failure to believe. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken to her. This contrast is astounding. Zechariah, priest of the Lord, advanced in age, at least 60s, disbelieves God. While Mary, a 12 to 14-year-old girl, likely uneducated, coming from a socially backward class, is the one who believes God. Now, in our culture, let me just be upfront, it's all too common to celebrate youth and what's new at the expense of age, wisdom, and a proven track record. But yet, all too common in the church, we make the opposite error of assuming that spiritual maturity is equated with age. But that's simply not the case. There are Christians who have been Christians for decades, and as the author of Hebrews says, though by this time ought to be teachers of the law, still need someone to teach again the basic principles. Conversely, there are young people who, though they have just come to faith in Christ, are so zealous for studying God's Word that the Holy Spirit produces in them a biblical wisdom and spiritual maturity that's vastly superior to older Christians who've just coasted for decades. So we need to not make the mistake of assuming age is equivalent with maturity. And teens, I want you to look up here for a minute. I want you to notice how significant Mary is this 12 to 14-year-old girl, who despite her young age is an example of faith. Despite her young age, she recounts what we'll see in a moment as beautiful theological depth. Not only does she understand the Bible and who God is, but she can recount it to others. And though Mary was so young, the world continues to celebrate her obedience and her faith, even still today. And so teens and children in this room, please hear me. Don't underestimate what God, by His grace, can do in your life. If you would give yourself to studying His Word, trusting His Word, obeying His Word, God can use you to flip the world upside down. I pray for that. I believe that. At a young age, you are capable of being an example of faith to us all. At a young age, you are capable of understanding theology and articulating it well and clearly. And if you will give yourself to nurturing your faith, nurturing your love for God, the Lord will use you. I believe that. I pray for that. And church, we need to be careful not to discount our teens and children. We ought to take them and their questions seriously. We ought to challenge them intellectually. We ought to be a people who engage them not just on Wednesday night when their programs are for them, but on Sunday mornings and throughout the week showing them that they're welcome in the body of Christ. We ought to invest deeply in relationship with them. Even as young as 12 to 14, God blessed Mary's faith and changed the world through her obedience. And God can do the same today. So how do we receive Jesus' blessing? We receive his blessing through trust. But once we've received the blessing, how should we respond? Look with me, verse 46. And Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here we see, we should respond to his blessing with rejoicing. We should respond to his blessing with rejoicing. After hearing Elizabeth's blessing, Mary bursts into song, singing in verse 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is the appropriate response to all that the Lord has poured out for us in Christ. We magnify Him, not because we can somehow make Him greater than He actually is, but rather, we magnify Him by increasing the love, joy, and worship of God in our soul until all of those things are more in line with how great God is. And the natural outflow of such magnification, is rejoicing in our God. Mary rejoices in God, my Savior. We come to treasure Him more deeply. And this is our hope for our church, that we would see Jesus treasured above all else and made much of. Once Mary then breaks out into song, rejoicing in God, her Savior, she then goes on to provide five reasons for her and for us to rejoice. And I wonder as we go through them, which of these reasons will fill your heart with joy? First, we see in the first half of verse 48, we rejoice because he sees us in our humble estate. Mary rejoices in the fact that God has seen her, noticed her, and blessed her, though she was young, poor, and likely uneducated. She was down and out, and yet God saw her. Yet this is true for all of us. Consider the psalmist as he wonders at God and his creation when he asks this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This is perhaps one of our greatest blessings in Christ, that despite how small and seemingly insignificant we are in our expanding and expansive universe, that God still, in the midst of all the great things, looks upon and sees us. The same God who created the universe and holds it in his hand is the same God who sees you and who gives you value and worth because you are seen by him. But the joy that comes from God seeing us is only experienced to the degree that we recognize our humble and lowly estate. How amazing it is that God would notice us out of all the universe. This is why St. Augustine, on one of the greatest theologians of the church, would write this. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second. And humility is the third. We can only appreciate God's grace, God's favor, God's sight in knowing us when we recognize how little we are, how little we deserve, and yet how God has been kind to us anyway. And so, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, consider then how precious you are. That despite your sin, 
despite your brokenness, despite your failures and your limitations, God sees you and loves you. God notices you and cares for you, even as small as we are. So first, we rejoice because he sees us in our humble estate. God draws near to the lowly and broken. But second, we rejoice because he secures our future. In the second half of verse 48, Mary recounts how from now on generations will call me blessed. She anticipates what God will do for her in the future. And just as it's right for Mary to rejoice in what God is doing to bring her future fame, future blessing, it's right for us to rejoice in our future blessing. One pastor writes, If we're Christians, if Jesus is truly born in us, we too will be called blessed far beyond earth's history. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew, Then the king will come and say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And again, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And if all that's not enough, we actually will bear a resemblance to his son. Beloved, this is Paul. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice because he secures our future. There is incredible blessing beyond all compare coming into the world. The best is yet to come. Third, we rejoice because of who he is. Powerful, holy, and merciful. In verses 49 through 50, Mary turns her attention not only to what God has done for her and for his people, but who he is and what he's like. She rejoices in the one who is mighty or powerful. God is the one who does impossible things. She rejoices in the one who is holy. God is utterly set apart. He is transcendent above us, beyond us, different, morally pure, which as people come into an encounter of this kind of holy God, creates awe, wonder, and fear in the hearts of those who stand before him. But she doesn't end with holiness. She ends there with mercy. She rejoices in his mercy. Although God is holy and therefore terrifying because sin cannot go unpunished in the presence of God, the text tells us, for those who fear him, he extends mercy And this is what characterizes his interactions with his people. Instead of receiving the judgment we deserve, he shows us mercy. And here, I would simply say, if you cannot rejoice in who God is, not just what God has done for you, then it's not likely you'll enjoy heaven. What's so spectacular about heaven is that we get to be in the presence of this God that we get to see him face to face, rejoicing in who he is and what he's like, enjoying the relationship he created us to enjoy. So now we rejoice not just for what he's done, but in anticipation of heaven, when we'll rejoice in who he is. He is powerful, holy, and merciful. Fourth, 
We rejoice because he reverses our circumstances. In verses 51 through 53, Mary describes a great reversal morally, socially, and physically. She recounts how the proud will be scattered. The powerful will be brought down. And the prosperous will be sent away empty. And all the while, the humble will be exalted. And the hungry will be satisfied with good things. Now virtually all commentators point out two errors we need to avoid as we look at these three verses. First, we could over-spiritualize this verse. Essentially saying that there's no implications for those who are literally outcasts, literally poor. Or we could overly materialize this verse, removing significance for the spiritual outcast and spiritual poor. But the most basic point of this verse is, if we want to know the riches of God and His mercy, we need to admit the poverty of our lives, both materially and spiritually. And when we do so, we experience a great reversal, guaranteed by the greatest reversal of all time. God who is in the place of ultimate power, reverses places with the marginalized, the poor and the oppressed. The prophets, as Mary did, always sang songs like this one, where God brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the poor. But they never could have imagined that God himself would descend from the throne and suffer with the oppressed so that they might be lifted up. But this is exactly What the eternal Son of God did when He took on human flesh, when He was born as a baby. He descended from His throne to enter into our experience. The pattern of the incarnation and of the cross means that the world's glorification of power, might, and status is exposed and defeated. On the cross, Christ wins through losing. He triumphs through defeat. He achieves power through weakness and service. And He comes to wealth by giving it all away. And when Jesus did this on our behalf, he ensured that all who would admit their poverty, all who would admit their hunger, all who would admit their neediness, all who would admit their thirst, would be filled with good things, as our text says. Or never hunger and thirst, as God's gospel says. They would be satisfied. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of life. In this world... We're tempted to look to all sorts of things to satisfy our hearts. Pride in our proficiency, power through our positions, provision through our prosperity, and on and on we could go. But ultimately, none of these things satisfies the human heart. Provision, prosperity, power, it will never be enough. We must look to Jesus And rejoice in Him, the only one who reverses our circumstances by taking our place. And finally, we rejoice because in His mercy, He sustains His relationship with us. So in verse 54 and 55, Mary recounts how God has helped His people in remembrance of His mercy. And she recounts how God was the one who first spoke to His people and continues to speak to His people forever. He does not leave his people to their own devices. He helps them. He meets them. He speaks to them. And he sustains us specifically by revealing himself to us through his word. 
And this points us to the biblical truth that although creation is sufficient to teach us there is a creator, creation is not sufficient to teach us that he's loving, that he's merciful, that he's kind, that he draws near to the brokenhearted. If we're to know God like that, we need his word. And the good news for all of us is that in God's mercy, he revealed himself first through the prophets under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote down Scripture for us. But then he most fully revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus, his Son, who entered the world the very first Christmas as the fullness of God dwelling bodily. And not only in his mercy has he revealed himself to us through his word, his help, and his Son, but he also now continues to sustain us, continuing to speak to us, as the Holy Spirit draws us near to Christ as we meet Him in His Word, so that we might see Jesus and trust Him. And that's why this Christmas season, if you are not yet reading the Scriptures, I plead with you, jump in on community Bible reading with us. Pick up one of the bookmarks. We're reading through Matthew where we get to see Jesus. We've just seen His authoritative teaching. We've just seen his incredible miracles. And as we progress, we'll be able to see a life of love poured out in sacrifice. So please, if you're not reading the word daily, join us so that you might see Christ in all his fullness and continue to hear the voice of God through his word. What a wonderful privilege we have to know Christ, the word made flesh through the scriptures, his living and active word today. So we rejoice because in his mercy, he sustains his relationship with us, especially by revealing us, revealing himself to us in his word. So Northwood, those who are truly blessed are those who trust in Jesus and rejoice in his blessing. The reason we can be blessed is because of Jesus. We receive his blessing through faith. And as we experience it, we respond to his blessing with rejoicing because he sees us in our humblest state, because he has secured our future for us, because of who he is, powerful, holy, and merciful, because he reverses our circumstances. And finally, because he sustains his relationship with us. And it's these great truths that we get to rejoice in as we participate in communion together. When we come to the table... It's because of Jesus and the greatest reversal of all time. He took sin upon himself so that we might draw near to him. When we come to the table, we come by trust. As our statement of faith says, when the Lord's Supper is celebrated by the church in genuine faith, it confirms and nourishes the believer. The reason we come by faith is because we're not looking to our performance, but to God's in Christ. We're resting on what Christ accomplished for us through his body given and his blood shed on the cross. And finally, when we come to the table, we come reflecting on what Christ has done for us, but also rejoicing and anticipating the future blessing we'll receive when Jesus finally returns and sets all things right. But before we celebrate these wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ, Paul warns us that a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
And so before we come to the table together to remember and rejoice in what Christ has done for us and in hopeful anticipation of the blessings that are awaiting us, let's take a moment to examine ourselves. And first, I'd ask us to examine ourselves to see if we are in Christ. So as I said earlier, even if you've grown up in the church and you would affirm all the things that I said earlier are true of the gospel, but you have never personally turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, this meal is not for you. And you could be drinking God's judgment upon you by participating in it. And so if you're still having a hard time understanding, am I that person or not that person? I plead with you, take this time to consider what Christ has done. Reflect on what he's done, whether you really trust him, and then come talk with me or one of our members after the service. We would love to talk more about whether you not just agree with the gospel, but trust in Christ. And second, examine your relationships within the body of Christ. The reason that Paul is so concerned for this church in Corinth is because of the divisions that are running through the church. They don't love one another well. They don't care for one another well. They're ignoring and not taking care of each other. And so, if there are any broken relationships you have, especially within this church family, that you have not sought to mend, if there's any forgiveness you have not yet extended, if there is bitterness you're nursing in your heart, then I would plead with you, refrain from taking this meal and instead take the time to consider first the debt you owed to God. Consider the grace and mercy he poured out on you. Then consider the debt that's owed to you and ask, does it really compare? And let that move you to pursue your brother or sister with grace and forgiveness. Then third, examine yourself for unrepentant sin. We need to remember this. We all come to the table as sinners by grace. If that were not the case, none of us would ever come to the table. And yet what marks Christians is that we repent of known sin. And so here what I'm asking you to do is not try to think of all the possible things you might have done that were sinful. Instead, I'm inviting you to consider, is there any known area of your life that you're saying, I basically want this more than Jesus? And if there's something like that in your life, I would plead with you. Let it go and come to Jesus for a fresh experience of his grace because his grace is sufficient for you. But if you're not willing to let it go, then I'd plead with you, stay in your chair. Continue to consider the grace and blessing that's available to you in Christ, all that he's done, so that you would see Jesus as better than your sin. And if the Spirit doesn't stir up anything through these particular prompts, just use this time to consider what God has been saying to you through his word. And perhaps these questions will help you. How do you count your blessings? Primarily by your circumstances or by your proximity to Jesus? Ask the Holy Spirit today to help you to focus more on Christ than your circumstances. What are your barriers for trusting Jesus completely and to experiencing true blessing? Identify someone you could talk with this week about those barriers. And finally, what specific reason do you have for rejoicing in Christ? Thank Him right now, especially as we come to the table, remembering what He's done. Thank Him for the abundant blessings you have in Christ.
Let's take a moment to examine our hearts and to reflect on God's word. table and when you're ready he invites you to come by his grace night Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating a meal with his disciples, one that looked back on the blessings God had first brought into the life of his people when he rescued them out of Egypt. And yet, as they shared this meal together, Jesus would have them know that there would be far greater, newer blessings by what he was about to do, by giving his life on the cross. His disciples would experience freedom from sin and death. Best blessing 
we could ever hope for. And so, taking the bread, when he had blessed it, said, this is my body given for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together now in remembrance of Christ's body given for us. Then taking the cup when he had blessed it, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's now drink the cup together, remembering Christ's blood shed for us. By Jesus entering into our world, we have received innumerable blessings, countless blessings that we will get to spend all eternity rejoicing in, celebrating. And so now in anticipation of that day, let's stand together and worship our Savior.